Oh, hello there, you absolute legend. Welcome back to another episode of A Need to Read. I'm Ed Cunningham, your host as always, and today I've got Professor Nicola Rayhani on the podcast to talk about her new book, The Social Instinct. She is a professor of evolution and behaviour at UCL, and her new book, The Social Instinct, looks at why we cooperate as humans. Now it's quite an interesting topic because I thought that humans were mostly selfish and if you listen to Richard Dawkins, his book The Selfish Gene, kind of alludes to the fact that we might be selfish creatures and that there might not be too much we can do about that. Well Nicola has kind of turned that idea on its head and has looked at cooperation as a functional part of life from cells to society and it's what makes us different to the great apes. Now in the conversation we have a look at what we have in common with meerkats, what the idea of peacocking is, why our reputations matter and how paranoia isn't just a symptom of a mental disorder that could actually be quite a functional part of life. Also we chat about the impact of community on mental health and explore the idea of self-interested altruism. It was a pretty good conversation, if I may say so myself, so I hope you enjoy it. And just before we get into it, let's just pay the bills here. If you'd like to support me and the podcast, one of the best things you can do is sign up to my mailing list so that you can tell me whether or not I'm a good writer, because I rely on that validation more than you would ever know. And also, in terms of sponsors, all of that stuff, I do respect your time. I'm not going to spend too long on that. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. They do talking therapies for people on the internet. And guys, therapy completely changed my life. I love it. I think I'm probably going to be going back soon, if I'm completely honest. And if you want to join me on that journey, obviously, you're not going to join me on it. You don't have to tell me about your therapy. But if you'd like to get some, just head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read. You get 10% off your first month. As well as that, you're matched with a therapist within 48 hours. It couldn't be simpler and it is cheaper than face-to-face counselling. So it's betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read. A very good way to support this podcast as well as signing up for a mailing list and maybe getting yourself some therapy would just be sharing it with a friend. Always appreciate it. Just appreciate your time if I'm honest. So thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I've read the book. People who are listening haven't read the book. So what is what is the social instinct about? Uh, in a broad sense, it's about cooperation. And it's about the role that cooperation has played, not just in shaping the world that we live in and our own societies, but actually in creating the world as we know it. So cooperation is a fundamental driving force behind every living thing on Earth from plants and bacteria and animals like us. They're all things that are made of cooperating entities. And then we can, you know, zoom out and see how cooperation shapes things like parental care and families and all the way out to the large scale societies that many of us live in today. So it's a big story about the role of cooperation on earth and also more specifically about how that has shaped our own very special story as of our species. Yeah, because we are quite unique in that way. From from what I found in, in reading your books, there aren't many things that behave in the same way that we do. And there was something quite interesting said about how we've got here. It's about how we look after people who are not able to reproduce anymore. And that's quite a uniquely human phenomenon. There's a, there's a couple of things that do it, right? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think actually one of the big takeaways in the book is just how much we have in common with other species on the planet that are also social and living groups and how much cooperative behavior that we like to think of as being the exclusive domain of humans that we see in other species as well. So in lots of ways, there are lots of similarities between the kinds of things we do and say what goes on in the colony of an ant or inside a, a beehive or among groups of meerkats and things like that. But then again, you are right that, you know, there is something fundamentally different about humans in the sense that, you know, we're the only species that has managed to build these large scale societies where we all live together amongst strangers. You know, as I look out my window now and sat here at UCL in the heart of London and outside my window, there's a very busy road down below. There's lots of people driving, there's cyclists. Everyone more or less is doing the thing they should do, like they're stopping at the red lights and letting pedestrians cross on separate crossings and things like that. And those kinds of cooperation uh, are really quite distinct and unique to our species. So I think there are lots of similarities we can draw, but then there are also lots of ways in which we really are quite different as well. Mm. And and those similarities go right down to the microscopic level, don't they? There was there was a part in the book you you spoke about at the cellular level when they cooperate within cells. Would you mind touching on that? Because I think one thing I've kind of realised recently, and especially from from reading your book, is just how much we are actually part of the world, and how we're we're part of these systems that that work together. And it, of course, is is by chance that we are the the leaders of this thing we're just bigger cells if if that makes sense um i'm not a scientist obviously <laughs> um in in any way shape or form but that's that's what i found quite interesting because it, it took humans out of the center of the world for me understanding that we behave in very similarly to tiny microscopic cells that we've only just realized exist <laughs> yeah so um the structure of the book, in a way, as you say, starts at this very micro level in looking, you know, taking this fact that you look at it in the mirror and you see yourself as this coherent entity, as an individual. But in, in fact, if you could look inside your body, what you would realize is that just like every other living being on Earth, you're actually comprised of lots and lots of things that are all working together towards the joint end towards making this whole organism that you know as you and I know as me. And so every living thing on earth is comprised of genes that are cooperating together inside genomes and then cells that are also working together um, to for a common purpose. And, uh, you know, one thing that's quite interesting about when we look at this subcellular level is that we see that this idea of joining forces and suppressing self-interest and working towards a common good, those kinds of general rules are things that sound really familiar to us because we're also quite common with those, uh, sorry, we're quite familiar with those rules appearing in our societies and in our families and in our daily interactions. And those kinds of things are also happening inside our bodies. So if we just take the perspective of one gene, for example, there's no real reason why a gene has to be caught up inside a body in order to find its way into the next generation. And so the genes in our bodies are, but in principle, they could be free floating strands of material and they could, or they could join smaller teams and they could still find their way into subsequent generations. But 
evolution has acted on these entities, these replicators, if you like, to become part of something bigger and to put aside their own self-interest and to, uh, to be part of a greater good. And, and some people actually refer to the, um, the genes inside our body as being something like a parliament of genes where all the genes sort of work together and they all act in unison to suppress the interests of any selfish entity or any selfish individual gene that might try to get a bit of a head start or an advantage over the others. And in this way, this kind of collective unionization, if you like, of the genome promotes a greater good. It promotes a form of cooperation that allows this individuality to emerge and these, you know, this kind of new level of organization, which us as individuals to, to, to emerge. And we see that those principles happen and are, and are evident at lots of levels of life. This, this idea that, um, cooperation at a larger scale, whether that's a, um, a community scale or a societal scale to achieve cooperation at those, those kinds of larger scales typically involves means to suppress the self-interest of the entities that are lower scale, whether they're genes, whether they're cells, whether they are individuals in a group or something like that. And where we see cooperation emerging is where we're able to effectively suppress self-interest and get these entities acting together in the common good. So that's how it works at like a, a genome and, and cellular level. Why then in, in the West have, have we, have we changed this when we do it on a human scale? I know there are there, we, we can cross the road safely in London. I do feel like that's quite a uniquely London thing. When I try and cross zebra crossings back in Dorset, where I'm from, people don't stop as, as quickly and they seem maybe less cooperative, um, than people in London, but it, it seems that what you just described there was quite an Eastern way of living the the suppression of the individual because i think w when we look at it in the west it's like it's right tall poppy syndrome or cut down the tall poppy so that the the rest of the group um doesn't have to deal with their shit basically um and and i think that's like an australian thing i feel like the us and america there's more encouragement being placed on making yourself bigger making yourself taller, making yourself stand out and being more of an individual. I think that, I think that kind of, um, resistance to big shot behavior or state of seeking and those kinds of things is actually a very human thing that we see, um, in all societies on earth to or maybe to varying extents, but I mean, there's actually one really lovely, um, ethnographic account that I mentioned in the book. And it's um, a story by Richard Lee, who was um, an anthropologist. And he was working uh, in the Kalahari with Bushmen. And he'd been studying how these, how the Bushmen that he was working with foraged and, you know, their subsistence methods. And so it, he always had enough food for himself, but he kind of got this reputation as being a bit of a tightwad because he never shared any of his stuff with with the people he was studying because he was trying to work out how they, you know, foraged and got food and things like that. So when it came to Christmas time, he decided he's going to sort of do a good deed for the for the community he's living with. He goes to the town and he buys 
a very big cow and brings it back in order for this cow to be slaughtered and provide a big feast at Christmas. And mm. he thinks he's going to get loads of praise for this. You know, he's, he's gone out and he's brought this um, really the biggest cow he could find. And yeah, and he's really expecting that everyone, he's going to be the hero when he gets back. But in fact, everybody is really scathing about this cow. So he starts hearing lots of comments about how the cow is really scrawny and it's so scrawny that people are going to end up getting into fights over scraps of meat. And some of the women sort of look at it and say, well, there's not much on that, but I guess we can use the bones for some soup or something like that. Or everyone's quite disparaging and no one's very nice to him about this cow. And it's only when he sits down with one of his friends in the camp and says, I don't really understand what's going on here. I've gone and bought this amazing cow and no one is appreciating me for it that the guy sent him, well, this is our way. If someone goes hunting in the bush and they catch something big, they leave it a way away. They leave it near the entrance to the camp and they just come back in and say, oh, I haven't really had a very good hunting day today. I've barely caught anything. And that's how we know when they've really caught something big. And there's a lovely quote, he said something along the lines of, um, if someone boasts, we always like to bring them down and, you know, in this way we cool their heart and make them gentle. And this kind of phenomenon of bringing people down to size, of preventing people from trying to achieve status um, and uh, preventing people from what what's often called big shot behavior, it's really quite common in lots of ethnographic accounts, this idea that we are all the same. Every man is head man of, his, of himself. That's another kind of saying that came out of these ethnographic accounts. Like, um, I think is really quite common. So, yeah, I mean, we probably tend to think tall poppy syndrome is something we've kind of invented, but I think it's a really human um, phenomenon that is very, very common across societies. Yeah. And and in those societies, there's, there's something in the way that they raise their children right in terms of raising them as part of a community and this like the the way that we all work together nowadays in western world i, th I think you said it did it originate in italy because of a priest i'm not talking about like the whole like the idea of the nuclear family and and marrying outside of your family um being quite a good idea when did that come about so the, I, these are two like slightly separate issues. So the the nuclear family, or the kind of what you might call the economically autonomous nuclear family, which is predicated on this idea of a male breadwinner who is able to provide everything that his family needs, and a female homemaker whose place is to basically stay at home and raise the children. Mm. That idea is a really recent um, historical invention. It's a Western ideal really um, and if we look either back into our species history or if we look around the planet at other contemporary human societies we see that the typical arrangement for our species is not to live in these sort of isolated nuclear units but to live in much larger extended family groups where mothers are not the only individuals that are responsible for raising offspring they are helped by lots of other individuals, uh, many of whom are family members, some of whom might be children themselves, grandmothers, um, other, other individuals in the community. Um, and the idea of the Western nuclear family probably emerged at some around the Industrial Revolution 
Um, and it was due to things like increases in productivity and, and um, improvements in agriculture that it basically created the wealth that made it possible for a single individual to provide for a family. Um, and in some respects, this is, um, it's, it's a very Western thing. Like when we look at other societies, that kind of emphasis on a female homemaker and a male breadwinner is just not so pronounced. And there are lots of reasons to think that actually kind of adhering to that ideal might be quite damaging, not only for um, mothers who are expected to do the bulk of the um, childcare and to spend a lot of time with their children on their own, but also for the children who actually really need to have experiences and interactions with other caregivers and with other children um, in, in order to kind of develop in the way that humans were historically in an evolutionary sense have always lived. Mm. So I think that this idea of the nuclear family, um, even though it feels really familiar to lots of us, is actually quite anomalous. And I think that's often quite surprising to hear that. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Because well, if you didn't know, you just assume that that's how we've always done things and that that makes sense because I guess evolutionary wise like it takes two to tango may as well stick together but it, it hasn't always been the case because men would uh dump and run <laughs> well we are mammals i mean that we are unusual in that you know we're mammals and that what that is a group where in more than 90 percent of species the female is the exclusive caregiver to the offspring and in you know if we even look at our closest living relatives like the other great apes we're really quite different in that the father has any input at all into raising children. So chimpanzees are reared exclusively by their mothers. Orangutans are, you know, the, the great ape the great ape model of parenting is pretty similar to what we see in most other mammals, which is basically the mum does everything. But humans are really different, and it probably has a lot to do with the kinds of environments in which we evolved. Um, so if we look at the kinds of environments that contemporary great apes inhabit they're pretty benign um it's very easy to make a living as a great ape you live essentially in a giant salad bowl where everything you need is just as you can just pluck stuff off the trees around you you subsist mainly on fruit and leaves those things are very widely available um it's a it's a relatively easy environment in which to make a living and if we look at the kinds of environments that early humans evolved in things were much different so First of all, we had a much more calorie-rich diet. Um, we, it was a much drier and more difficult kind of environment in which to find food. So getting food often involved um, what we call extractive foraging, basically trying to dig stuff up, digging up tubers and things that were buried very patchily in the environment. You had to look for them and find them. Or uh, scavenging and hunting meat and things like that. And all that kind of, that foraging niche is not one that's very easy for a single individual to kind of provide enough food to support a family. Like for humans to survive in those kinds of environments, they we needed each other. We needed to work together. And I think that's how we can sort of start to understand these points of difference between the other great eight and human. Mm. So it's, it's kind of this like cooperative sense that we have or all of this learned cooperation that has helped us 
become the ones that live in flats and not in giant, giant salad bowls. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I sometimes say in some ways we have more in common with species like meerkats and ants and mole rats. If you, if you know, um, if you've ever seen a mole rat, um, yeah. then we do really in some respects with the other great apes in that all those species are also what's known as cooperative breeders where individuals live in family groups and they work together to raise offspring. And just like those other cooperatively breeding species, um, we also kind of inhabit those similar kinds of environments that are favorable to cooperative breeding. So difficult environments, um, food is sporadically available, potentially quite unpredictably available as well. And where you kind of need the buffer and the insurance of living in a bigger group to be able to get by. And, you know, just like us, for example, meerkats live in family groups where um, individuals work together to raise offspring. That's what mole rats do. That's, of course, what ants do as well. And, you know, it, we actually have quite a bit in common with these species that we don't really think of as being near us on the tree of life. But yeah. nevertheless, they kind of face similar um, social and ecological pressures that, that humans have and would have faced. Okay. So let's take meerkats for, as, as an example, cause I feel like people like meerkats more than they like mole rats just on an aesthetic basis. Um, how, how is it that the, the meerkats behave in ways that are similar to, to us in ways that apes don't? Okay, so um, they live in these big groups, like I've said, they live in family groups. Um, we see that um, meerkats, they have a slightly unusual breeding system. So um, typically in a meerkat group, there will be one male and one female that produce all of the pups that get born in that group. And most of the other mem members of a meerkat group um, don't breed. And instead they help to raise the offspring of the king and queen or the dominant pair. And they help in lots of different ways. So they, um, uh, cat helpers will feed pups by foraging for things like scorpions and, and grubs in the sand and giving them to pups. They will babysit pups at the very young pups that have to stay at the burrow and aren't old enough to forage with the group. Um, often cat helpers will stay at the burrow with those pups all day and not eat for the whole day and look after the pups. They'll help to defend the territory by having um, kind of skirmishes with neighboring groups. Um, and they even actually do something which we think of as being a very quintessential human thing, which is they teach pups as well. So meerkat teaching is um, quite interesting. This was work that was done by my friend and colleague, um, Alex Thornton and Katie McAuliffe. And if you imagine yourself as a meerkat for a moment, you basically spend most of your time digging in the sand for food items. Most of the food items are, won't put up a fight, but there's one kind of food item that's really quite dangerous that you might find. And that is a scorpion and in particular a paraboothic scorpion, which are the common kind of scorpion in the Kalahari. So if you get stunned by one of those, if you're a meerkat, you may die you could lose an eye even if you're a human and you don't have a if you have a bad reaction to it you will be in trouble so these things are pretty venomous uh, and as a meerkat pup you have to learn how to effectively handle one of these um food items if you want to you know you want to avoid being stung and also you don't want your lunch to escape 
And what Alex and Katie found is that the um, the adult meerkats actually provide the pups with opportunities to learn how to handle these very dangerous prey items in a relatively safe setting. So the way that they do this is um, when the pups are very young, the meerkats will provision them with dead scorpions. So they will basically kill the scorpion, they will remove the sting, and then they let the pup mess about with it and eat it finally. Yeah. When the pups are a bit bigger, they will chomp the scorpion up a bit and nip the sting off, but they'll give it, um, they'll still provision the pup with a live prey, even if it is a bit maimed. Yeah. And it's only when the pups are older again that the adults will finally provision with live, intact scorpions and let the pup figure out how to remove this thing and to dispatch that prey item. And so basically the adults give the pups these opportunities to practice their prey handling skills in a safe way that allows the pups to basically learn something that would be very difficult for them to learn independently and potentially very dangerous for them to learn independently. And I guess, I don't know if you have a cat, but anybody who has a cat probably might have found themselves being also a pupil in a similar kind of lesson because we know that that tendency that cats sometimes have to bring a half-dead mouse or bird into the house and leave it there for you is also kind of an expression of this similar kind of teaching behavior and we know that domestic cats probably also teach their kittens how to hunt in a very similar way to how many cats teach the pups how to hunt. Yeah, it's amazing that a dead mouse can be an expression of love from something that you usually think just loves you for food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And <laughs> when they look at you like, why aren't you getting it? That you feel like you're kind of like really letting them down. Yeah. So basically next time a cat brings anyone a mouse, just put it in your mouth and play with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, look, comp- look competent. <laughs> so that's kind of how the meerkats go through school then, I guess. It's, it's similar to... To us being in school, and there must be something quite instinctive about that. Where, when it comes to like nature and, and nurture, from all of your research that you've done on this, do you think that humans are kind of straying from what might be natural for us? Oh, um, I think. I think. Do you mean like we're kind of really influenced by culture rather than by? Uh, yeah, I mean like civilization and its discontents. Kind of like Freud's view that we're repressing a lot of our animal instincts and it makes us like miserable in these societies where we're forced to live in a nuclear family. Because um, I, I read Civilization and Discontents and and it was tough because obviously it's well old and Freud's a, a difficult individual. <laughs> um, but it it made me think for quite a while that maybe maybe there are things that we're not doing right. Maybe I think so. I think humans are and have always been a cultural species. So I think culture is part of our history. So I don't think um, culture is this thing that's like oh we you know we've got these biological urges and then we've got this weird culture mm. that's kind of suppressing all of our biological urges. So I think that. Humans are quite, uh, one of the distinctive things about our species is that we do have this kind of dual inheritance, if you like, where the way the influences on our development come not only from the genetic inheritance we glean from our parents, but also from the kinds of environments we develop in and the cultural inheritance that we get from the environments we develop in. And I think that 
so I think that culture is not necessarily something which suppresses um, a what you might call like a natural human instinct. I think that it can influence it for sure, but there's more, I would say there's more evidence that these things sort of co-develop over time. Mm. But I guess one thing I would say, like sort of to agree with your question in some ways, I think there are, you can always pull out specific examples of where, um, and like the nuclear family is one really good example of that, where we understand something about the evolutionary history of our species and we see very recent cultural inventions like the economically autonomous nuclear family and we can say well you know we can then interrogate to what extent is this kind of beneficial to what extent does this and obviously that would depend on like what how you define beneficial like are we interested in well-being maternal depression things like that or or to what it's actually just causing harm. Yeah. And so I think like you can make a case for some of these kind of like this, nu- the nuclear family ideal, you can find plenty of evidence for that being, you know, having lots of harmful effects, I think on mothers, on children and, and, and things like this. But, um, yeah, I think it's like quite a complex question really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah nature, nurture, work it out for me, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe that wasn't wasn't the best type of question. Um, now you spoke a little bit about reputation in the book, and I've, I've just been reading Elephant in the Brain by I haven't got it around me, so I can't tell you who it's by. Um, but they, they speak about how we deceive ourselves and self deception, and then using that as a as a means to like manipulate others. And you spoke about reputation and peacocking, um, in in the book. So I just like to touch on on peacocking and and reputation and see see if we can like merge the both why why is it important to to maintain like a reputation and why and why do people peacock one thing that's kind of interesting and distinctive about humans is our propensity to cooperate with uh, beyond the family boundary, so with non-relatives and even not uh, with people we don't even know, with complete strangers. So, you know, if we were, if you were to look at a chimpanzee, for example, strangers are really viewed with suspicion and hostility and often chimpanzees will very aggressively attack individuals that they don't know. And humans are clearly different. Like, not only do we not do that, we actually strike up opportunities to have productive collaboration with strangers and you know that's the basis of things like trade and exchange and things like that but in order for those kinds of interactions to be productive that you have to get over this hurdle of trust which is basically that in any interaction with um with an individual you don't know there's a risk that if you um put something into that interaction if you pay something or if you invest something that your trust might be exploited and that you will be swindled or, uh, you know, that the other party will um, not reciprocate or something like that. And reputation is one really valuable tool that we have at our disposal to foster, to send a credible signal that we are trustworthy ourselves and also to foster trust within those kinds of interactions where you're not, where otherwise you might not cooperate. And so we see that this kind of um, the reputation is obviously like used in in arenas like online trading platforms. Like imagine eBaying without a reputation score. Why would you send money to a seller if you didn't know 
if they were definitely going to mm. send you the product. Um, uh, it's, think, it's used on things like Airbnb, uh, and it's it's also used actually on even on platforms that probably mo- most of us don't visit. Things like the dark web, where people go to buy uh, illicit substances and uh, forbidden forbidden. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And you, you know, you might think on a platform like the dark web, basically populated by criminals and um, sort of you know, you, people that aren't necessarily rule abiding, that you wouldn't really be able to trust anyone. But again, we see that on those kinds of platforms, they have these reputation systems that foster trust, even even in a place where you might not feel especially inclined to trust yeah. others, right? So we, but this, I think that this is. Um, something that's been super important, not just in the era of the internet, but going way back into our species history, a concern for reputation and the information that reputation offers about another individual's character have have been a hugely important part of understanding why we're so cooperative. So even if we go back to uh, the Middle Ages, we see that lots of traders were used reputation and membership of guilds, which are the kind of a form of reputation. If you're a member of that guild, you're probably a good person. These things were being used even way back before, you know, any kind of notion of the internet and eBay and things like this. And it's one way in which I think humans are really quite different to other species is that is our, is our ability to understand how our actions will affect another individual's impression of us and to strategically manage that impression that we send out into the world. And there's just not really that much evidence that we see that even young children can't do it. Uh, chimpanzees don't do it. It's really only in humans, once they hit about adolescence, that they start to do this and start to be aware that, that reputation is a currency and that it's valuable and that they should try to strategically manage it. It's amazing that like kids don't do it until, until they're kind of conscious of it. It's such a shame that that, that point has to happen. <laughs> Well, actually, I guess it's not. It's kind of like the right to sue and the right to be sued, isn't it? Kind of like you want to keep a good reputation because you do. You want to be a good person. So I suppose it influences your behaviour. I think a world without reputation would not be a world that I'd want to live in. I mean, if you think like how people would behave if you genuinely didn't care what other people thought of you and you had no, um, you had sort of no insight into that, I mean, I think that's really one of the things that that sort of separates us in some respects from um, chimps and the other great apes and and toddlers and things. It's like in a world manned by man-sized toddlers would be kind of scary to live in, I think. Yeah. Um, That brings me on to something else that I I wanted to speak about, about paranoia. Because that, I guess, plays a part in reputation management is thinking that someone thinks something of you. Um, And paranoia, most people obviously see as like a, a symptom of psychosis or or something something's going seriously wrong if you're paranoid but you you put it as like a function of life yeah so paranoia is often thought to be this kind of unwanted symptom of a mental health problem and ideally something that you should try to eradicate with drugs or with therapy uh and and, and get rid of and it's true that for a lot of people who have a mental disorder and like psychosis, for example, paranoia can often be a very disabling and distressing symptom of those disorders. But paranoia also exists 
on a spectrum of severity in the general population. Um, and it's probably a really important part of a normally functioning human brain, the capacity to um, appreciate that other people have intentions and that those intentions might not be benign, that they might be nefarious or malign, is a really important part of understanding how to navigate these very complex social worlds that we live in. So if we were to go out on the street outside my office now and grab um, a thousand people off the street, what we would find is that the vast majority would, if we asked them about their paranoid thoughts and feelings over the previous month, the vast majority of them, so about 800, 850, would basically say that they really experience very few paranoid thoughts at all. But there's just, there is still a sort of sizable minority of individuals who would report regularly feeling suspicious or mistrustful of others. And a small, very small minority, say 10, 15 people, would actually experience um, frank paranoid delusions. So um, beliefs that other individuals intend to harm you. Um, and even if those people wouldn't have any mental health um, diagnosis or disorder. And the work we've done has been to try to understand why we see that spectrum of paranoia in the general population and what makes people, what kinds of situations or contexts can turn the dial on that paranoid um, mindset. So in the moment can make you feel more paranoid or conversely can turn that dial down so you feel less paranoid. And what we've found is that, as you might expect, if paranoia is kind of doing something helpful in helping us navigate these social worlds. If you expose people to social threats, so things like um, people that they don't agree with politically, like you're a Brexiter and then you have to interact with someone who's a Remainer, for example, or a Republican and a Democrat, um, things like that. People, that kind of thing turns the dial on paranoid thinking. That's the kind of, those are the kinds of social interactions where we are more likely to suspect that individuals have bad intentions or to be more alert to the possibility that um, they might try to harm us. And mm. I think that that kind of paranoid thinking, where we're not talking about frank delusions, but we're just talking about this capacity to appreciate that other people have intentions and that their intentions might sometimes not be benign is a really is a really important part of a normally functioning human brain. And all of us can experience that from time to time. And you mentioned that, I don't know if you said you did the study, but there was a certain part of, is it Southeast London, where the men in the black community are finding it like found to have more paranoia. Um, and it's because they're in a marginalized group or that's kind of the causal relationship between the two. So there are lots of really interesting epidemiological studies. They're basically studies where you take a, you look at a broad swathe of the population, you find out a bunch of things about them and you try to work out what things are associated with your outcome of interest. And when you do epidemiological studies looking at either paranoia or psychosis risk as an outcome of interest, what you tend to find is that it is reliably predicted by indicators of social threat within the environment. So that can be things like people who've been bullied in school or who are being, who are victimized, people who have a small 
social networks and they don't have much social support. These are all indices of being at risk, more at risk for developing psychosis. What the effect you're talking about is one called the ethnic density effect, which is where people who are part of a marginalized ethnic minority group tend to be more at risk of developing psychosis, which is entirely consistent with this idea that paranoia responds to the kind of social threat that we experience in our day-to-day lives. However, if those people that are part of marginalized ethnic minority groups live in communities where they, where with other people like them, so where the marginalized ethnic minority group is at a higher density, that at-risk for psychosis effect tends to um, reduce or go away. And that also is consistent with this, with this idea of um, social threat feeding into this propensity to become increasingly paranoid. So people who basically feel more uh, increased safety in the environments that they live in, whether that's because they're not being bullied, they have a good, you know, large social network, they live, they're not part of a marginalized ethnic minority or if they are, they live in a, in a, in a place where they're, they're not the only person like that in their community. Those things all tend to be more protected against developing more severe forms of paranoia. And a lack of a social community, is that pretty catastrophic for people in, in general? Just a, a, like a, they're not cooperating with many people, they're isolated. Yeah, I mean, we are a hugely social species and I think asking either a human to live in isolation without a community is like, it's a bit like taking an ant out of a colony and just letting it kind of do survive by itself. Like we, we are not designed to live solitary lives. Humans don't come in waters, right? We come in, we are, we are, we're in, we're groupish. We live in groups. We need groups. We need society. And I think um, for a lot of people that not having access to that kind of social support network is really um, can have really damaging mental health consequences. Mm. It's it's confusing the more I come across information like that because I'm like all of all of the tips for mental health are like get up in the morning and have a coffee and do some yoga and it's like maybe get up in the morning and have a coffee with the person who lives in your house and have a chat and that'll probably do more for you. I think community is so underrated in some ways and so and. Um, yeah, it's like it's it, it's it's really interesting. Like there are lots of like therapies that are being that have that are being trialed and I think have quite a bit of success in helping people say with um who are who have schizophrenia or who have psychosis and um where the, where part of the therapy is actually getting it the family on board to be cut, you know, to kind of provide more of that support network and things like that. And yeah, I think you're totally right. Like there are lots of things individuals can do for themselves to that can have protective mental health effects. But probably lots of the reasons some of these things are so protective is because you do them with other people as well. So like if you go running, if you go with a running group or you go, you do your sport with friends or something like that, I, I would have thought these things are, also have potential to be really um, helpful as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely um, an interesting area that I'm going to look into a little bit more because it's it's so individualistic, the like mental health advice that's, that's coming out at the moment. And I definitely feel so much better 
after a half an hour coffee with a friend I haven't seen in a while than I would after half an hour yoga. It's such an interesting observation. Like I hadn't ever really thought about that before. But yeah, I, I think you're right that like lots of the emphasis is on what can you do for yourself mm. and not, I mean, there's loads of really interesting work around the benefits of friendship and conversely the cost of isolation or loneliness. And it really is not, it isn't just about it makes you feel bad. It's like it has real effects on your health or things like your, the health of your heart and you're at, at risk for illness and, and even like mortality risk, like the age at which you die. Like there's quite some really interesting work coming out now just showing the kind of ways that experiencing loneliness can manifest itself physically in your body. So I think, yeah, I think it's a really interesting observation. Yeah, it's an exciting time for science. If that's that's going to come out, everyone's going to stop meditating. Everyone's going to start meeting up in the morning for <laughs> beers. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Um, yeah, so well, one last thing, uh, and then we can wrap it up. I, I put in my notes that altruism can be self-interested. Um, most people would hear that, but no, it never can be. Altruism's altruism. So, so would you mind explaining that? Yeah, I, I like this question because I get asked it a lot and it, I always like having the opportunity to sort of explain what we mean when we say that altruism can be self-interested. So, I, I mean, I get accused quite a bit of taking the altruism out of altruism by showing how uh, helpful, kind, pro-social acts can ultimately be reconciled with an evolutionary benefit. Um, and I think that the it basically the critique just stems from a misunderstanding about what evolutionary biologists are really trying to explain. So um, when we, if you ask the question, why, why does an individual do this? Why are they, why are they helping that person? Why are they giving money to a homeless person? Or why are they, you know, why are they doing this thing that they're doing? There are multiple different answers you can give that explain that behavior from different perspectives and the kind that two of the really important ones that evolutionary biologists are interested in and where this confusion about whether altruism is self-interested or not stem from are called proximate and ultimate level explanations so proximate explanations are basically why you have the urge to do that thing or what makes you do that thing in the moment um and and then the ultimate explanation is why has doing that thing been favoured by selection and why is it that members of that species tend to do that thing rather than doing some other thing so to explain it i always find it's helpful to get away from altruism because it's too loaded and just okay. give a completely different example which is imagine you're on a safari in the serengeti and you see a lioness um hunting a gazelle and you're a you're a behavioral ecologist and you want to know why is she doing that thing like why is she hunting that gazelle so your proximate explanation would be maybe something like she hasn't eaten for a few days, so she's feeling hungry and hunger is a drive that drives you to do this hunting thing. Maybe she's got some cubs somewhere that need feeding. So there are a bunch of different proximate reasons why she could be at that moment chasing that gazelle. The ultimate reason, which the lioness does not need to have any awareness of, is that on average, lionesses that get off their bum once in a while and chase the gazelle tend to survive and have more offspring than the ones that just sit under a tree and don't do that thing. So on a, from an evolutionary point of view, we see how that behavior 
can be favoured, even if the Ryaness is completely unaware of the evolutionary imperative behind behind this hunting behaviour. And even if there are different proximate reasons, like hunger and things like that, that might prompt him to do that thing in the moment. And so if we then, if you translate that back now into the, are we really altruistic? What we can see is that um, lots of the time, when we choose to help someone, when we choose to do something pro-social, the impulse to do that can be very pure. So the reason we do it can be because we genuinely feel concerned for that individual. We genuinely want to help them. Sometimes it isn't that pure. Sometimes there can be calculated motives too, but it doesn't have to be. So we can allow that the motives underpinning healthy behavior can be completely what we call other regarding and pure, even if on an evolutionary level that those behaviors have been selected for because they tend to confer advantages to that individual. So, and you don't have to be aware of those advantages any more than you have to be aware of, say, having sex has, is favored because it leads to creating offspring. That isn't the only reason we would do that, but that is the evolutionary reason that sex exists, right? So, um, those kind of, that distinction between proximate and ultimate, I think is really important to keep in mind when we're sort of saying, is there any such thing as true altruism? Yes, on a proximate level, there is. But from an ultimate perspective, the reason cooperative behavior exists is because ultimately it has some evolutionary advantage to the individual that performs it. And does that tie in then? This is quite a big question and I'm I'm almost wishing I'm not going to say it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, does that come into like free will in the sense of like there are so, there's stuff going on within our minds that we have absolutely no idea and we'll never be able to touch why we do things like this, this whole, like the idea of like the society of mind, like you said, it was like society of cells, like different parts of our brains hide different bits from each other to kind of keep us sane. Is that I think it does in a way. I think I think we don't often have great introspective insight into the reasons that we do things. And that isn't only about helping behavior. I think that applies to lots of different behaviors. And I think that evolution is um evolution is such a clever process, right? Evolution has de- has designed feelings and emotions that we experience that get us to do things that are in our long-term best interest. So hunger, for example, is a really clever way of, of your body telling you that you need to eat. And that is ultimately really beneficial because if you don't eat, you will you'll eventually die, right? But yeah. you, got, you, evolution has designed this feeling that we experience, which is, I feel hungry, I feel thirsty, that prompts us to do something that is in our ultimate best interest. And in the same way, um, Often when we are given the opportunity to help another person or to behave in a charitable way, often that feels really good. And that feeling is something that economists call the warm glow of giving. And it yeah. get that nice fuzzy feeling. It feels great. It feels really nice to help someone. And that feeling is probably a little bit like hunger in a way. It's something that evolution has designed as a way of making you feel good about doing something that's actually costly that is in your long-term best interest to do and to be, and to, to, to do, um, uh, and to be perceived as doing as well. Right. So I think that this idea of like, are we really aware of like why we do things or how much control we have over them? is quite an interesting question. I think a lot of the time we don't have a very good introspective 
insight into why we really are doing the things that we do. And evolution is tricky. It tricks us into doing things a lot of the time by making it feel good to do those things. Yeah, I think I think it's such a fascinating topic. Are there any good books out there that are not not necessarily too academic, but on on evolution that might be worth reading? Uh, one that I came across recently that isn't it's about evolutionary game theory, but it touches on lots of these questions about why we do the things we do and how we can understand things from an evolutionary game theory perspective. Is a book called Hidden Games by Moshe Hoffman and Erez Yoli. Okay. That might be quite interesting to get them on. They, they, they'd be good for this, actually. Yeah. Okay. Gosh. Well, I'll read it and I'll see if I'm fair for the conversation. I, I always find it slightly intimidating speaking to academics. I, I have no academic background. I'm trying to just make up for lost time in school now by reading loads of books. Um, so, yeah, I'll have to read that maybe a couple of times and invite them on. Uh, oh, it's great. The book is great. Yeah, and it's it's been great to chat to you as well today. So I just want to say thank you so much for coming on. Your book, The Social Instincts, published by Penguin, which is wicked, by the way. Um, well done for that. It's for first book published by Penguin. Um, where's the best place people find it and, and keep up with your work? Uh, it's available wherever books are sold. Um, should be, I don't know if your audience is US as well, but it has a US publisher, so it should, should it has a different cover in the US. Um yeah, basically wherever books are sold and yeah, obviously on Amazon as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hopefully able to find it. Wicked. All right, perfect. And then for your work, is there any place, have you got a website or anything like that? I can direct oh, the to? best place to find me is Twitter, where I'm at, at Nicola Ray Honey. I do have a website as well, um, which yep. you, yeah, I think is linked from my Twitter profile, okay. Social Evolution and Behaviour Lab at UCL. Oh, wicked. All right, perfect. Well, thank you so much, Nicola. It's been great to chat to you. Great. Thanks, Ed. Nice to talk. Cheers. Hey, it's me. Did you enjoy that? I hope you did. If you did, let me know. Obviously, it helps my self-esteem if you let me know that you enjoyed it. And also, you might just like to share it with a friend. Or, honestly, it doesn't even have to be a friend. I'm not particularly fussy. You can go up to someone on the street and say, hey... Do you know why humans cooperate? Oh, you don't? Well, I've got a perfect podcast for you. And that is as easy as that. All the information for sponsors and how to sign up for the mailing list are in the description of this show. But thank you very much for your time today, you absolute legends. As always, I love the fuck out of you. Goodbye. Goodbye.